this evening, just to have been blessed to come together like this, is certainly a monumental one. For many in our world, of course, are encumbered with illness, sickness, various other obligations in some way that may preclude them from gathering like you and I are this evening. And yet, what a blessing it is for us to initiate this week and begin it by offering the adoration and praise that God so richly deserves. In our study of Hebrews over the, over the course of the last several weeks, we have arrived at a position of being in chapter 9 tonight. And as we do that, as often we are, it would be a good thing to do, it seems to me, a quick highlight of some of the superiorities that we have seen so far. It would be, I hope, that each of us could understand upon our study of Hebrews that perhaps we can remember the greatness, the betterment, the superiority found in this book as it describes Christianity compared to any other system available. In fact, throughout this study, just notice some of the greatness of, of the beauty of Christ compared to Moses, to Joshua, to the prophets, to the angels, in terms of his covenant, all of it, his priesthood, so much better than what has been available any other way, any other time, through any other means. And yet, the book of Hebrews isn't finished. For we tonight, in chapter 9, as you can see near the bottom of that slide, will have the opportunity to discuss the sanctuary, Christ's superior sanctuary, and almost immediately one might wonder, what then is the thrust, the focus, the meaning of chapter 9? In what way is Christ's sanctuary set before us, the sanctuary of the new covenant? I would ask that we continue that idea not only tonight, but likely it will require another lesson. So you might appreciate we'll get probably somewhat through it this evening, but we'll need to conclude that perhaps next Lord's Day evening. When we mention the sanctuary... Perhaps we could begin our lesson tonight with some thoughts, perhaps along these lines. As you can see, I've entitled it The Tabernacle. And almost immediately, your mind and mine would rush backward into the Old Testament era and perhaps recall some of the details and specifics surrounding that structure, that edifice, movable as it was, that God gave commandment with respect to it. In fact, the Hebrew writer clearly sets before all of us that Old Testament tabernacle, but he draws some timeless and eternal lessons from it, lessons that we each should strive to appreciate because therein we find yet from another angle the majesty, the greatness, the unsurpassed brilliance of the Christian system. And so tonight, would you notice as we start just a few of the comments that might be made relative to the tabernacle. On Sunday morning, as we study the book of Exodus at our Bible study period, we soon will arrive at our study of the tabernacle. And on that occasion, when we at least undertake that, we will be able to shed the spotlight ever more directly upon it. But just notice a few quick comments, if we might. Beginning in Exodus 25 and extending basically through the end of the book in chapter 40, we find some 16 chapters that present what in the mind of some might be rather hard and challenging reading. It may well be in fact cataloged amongst some of the genealogies of the Bible as perhaps not one's favorite section of Scripture to read. But we can rest assured that the Holy Spirit had a purpose for providing it to us. The Holy Spirit had an understanding that it is vital for us to appreciate it. And yet in those chapters of Exodus, we read about the tabernacle. Not only in terms of the detailed way it was to be constructed, 
The furnishings were to be placed in a particular place. Those who were allowed to enter certain portions of it were clearly delineated by the God of heaven. One thing, if we learn nothing else from the study of those chapters in Hebrews, as well as those chapters in Exodus, might be that our God is concerned about details. There might well be many in our world who think details are unimportant. So we're told. And they're quick to say, all you need to do is have a heart of love and God will be happy. Don't believe it for a minute. If God, in fact, expended this element of interest with detailed particulars and he expected them to follow it, details were important then and they are important now. And with regard to those details, you'll notice that some of the things listed highlight, if nothing else, this point. There was a specific, detailed, regulated, definitive pattern by which one could approach God. Any other approach or attempted approach than that which God had set forth was abominable, condemned, unsatisfactory, and unacceptable. That may sound harsh, but might we at least appreciate if God is to be approached, who has the right to set the terms of approach to him? Isn't, doesn't that fall with him? He is the one that dictates by his sovereign will who and on what terms they are able to approach him. Any other approach is unacceptable. Israel needed to learn that lesson. Thus, this tabernacle and every element in it, its furnishings, where they were placed, what was signified, what was done, all of it was vitally important. And the Hebrew writer uses those thoughts to challenge us in the Christian system to ever yet understand God will be approached on his terms or he will not be approached at all. And inasmuch as he is to be approached, there is a set, specific, definitive, unalterable way in which that can happen. And the Hebrew writer ties onto that thought and sets it before us in Hebrews chapter 9. And he does it under the banner of the great sanctuary of Jesus. With regard to that sanctuary, might we next recall what were the principal sections of the tabernacle of the Old Testament? Primarily, there were three. As you'll notice, I've tried to list them for each of us. There was an outer courtyard to the tabernacle complex, but then there was the actual tabernacle itself, which itself consisted of two sections or parts. There was this holy place that was somewhat the larger, but then, behind a veil, was this most holy place, or the holiest of all, as it is sometimes termed. And with regard to these three sections, they each had monumental significance. And the Jews learned early on to appreciate what each significant element represented. May we begin tonight to also attempt to do the same. But of course, we have a greater advantage in that we don't live beneath that system, but we have the New Testament inspired writings to point us directly to what it signified and we can thus make application to our life in Christ today. One of the things then we can also see, though that tabernacle existed so long ago, might we notice for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope to quote Romans 15.4. Thus, what were the lessons in that tabernacle for you and me today? What were the things to be seen in it? What about that altar burnt offering? Or perhaps the most holy place? Or the holy place? Or the table of showbread? 
or maybe the golden candlestick. All of those had their place in that as decreed and set forth by God. And every one of them has a significance for you and me today. I wonder what it is. As we start, let's work our way inward from the outside. Let's begin at the courtyard area and first of all ask about the elements and furnishings that consisted in it and see what those significances were. First of all, what about the court itself? As you'll notice, I've listed a few of the specifics, and we'll find these in our study of the Exodus, beginning in chapter 25 in particular. But first of all, we can well appreciate the court itself measured some 100 cubits by 50 cubits. So you'll notice it was rectangular in its shape. And as you can appreciate by one of the things noted, the actual tabernacle as a tent building itself was inside that particular court, and it was located in more the western end of it, centered, if you please, near that portion of the, of the courtyard itself. But that's not all. You'll notice that the border of the court was clearly specified by God. It was, in fact, to be some five cubits in height. For you and me, that'd be about seven and a half feet. And as you can see also on that slide, the people of the Old Testament would have to enter into that courtyard if they were to enter into the holy place itself. That was the only way that one could arrive at and enter into that holy place was to make one's way through the courtyard. Later in Jeremiah 26, we find God express, expressly telling Jeremiah to stand in the courtyard and preach. Thus, as those came for the act of worship as had been commanded by God, Jeremiah would have opportunity to, in fact, face-to-face, -face, exhort, encourage, and reprimand them for their dutilessness in the pursuit of God on that occasion. But you might also notice two principal items in this courtyard. That's, of course, besides the tabernacle itself. But what were these elements? As one first entered from the direction of the east into the courtyard, the first glaring element that was present, one would not be able to miss it, was the altar of burnt offering. And as one approached that altar, behind it you would also appreciate the existence of a smaller element known as the laver, and then beyond, beyond both of those two, that tabernacle itself. What's the significance of each of these? Working our way in order, let's turn our attention to the altar of burnt offering, if we might. If you'd like to go ahead and see one quick artist's rendition of this, this is one artist's attempt to display for us, if you were to look from the direction of the east, what you would in fact see. There was one entrance into this courtyard area. You'll notice the wall situated about it, as we noted, some five cubits in height. God had specified completely and thoroughly what that tent wall, if you please, was to be made of, its height, and even the way it was to, in fact, be secured. But inside, again, you'll notice centered, just through the doorway was that altar of burnt offering. Now, though we'll return to it later, you'll also notice between the altar of burnt offering and the actual tabernacle itself was that much smaller element known as the laver as we give some thought to what happened at these two things and what the significance at each one of them was, let's now ask again about that altar of burnt offering. We find it first described beginning in Exodus 27, starting at verse 1. 
For the next several verses in that chapter, we find God laying out exactly again the details of this altar, how it was to be built, what it was to be built out of, not only its dimensions, but who it was that officiated at it, the way in which it was to be moved and carried. God took care of all of the details. He didn't leave it to Moses to figure out. He didn't leave it to the priest to ascertain. Might we also notice the clear and straightforward grandeur of God's specifications. As we start looking at some of the details, first let's notice its size. This altar burnt offering was affirmed to be five by five by three in units of cubits. That brings us to seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a half in dimensions of feet, or at least roughly thereabout. So as you imagine, seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. This was no small grill you and I might have in our backyard. It was large enough to offer the various sacrifices God was going to command of his people. And we will remember there was to be many things offered here. Thus, there was sufficiency, at least on this occasion, to handle what God was going to command relative to the offerings on this altar of burnt offering. But what's more, you'll notice that there were to be many regulations in the chapters to come relative to the blood of those animals offered at that place. The priests on some occasions were commanded to go in and sprinkle that blood around certain elements to be found actually in the tabernacle itself. Sometimes they sprinkled the blood around the altar. At other times, by command of God, they were actually to take it inside and to do something with it. In each instance might we begin to appreciate the significance of blood. Can you imagine then as a youngster grew up in Judaism and he'd see dad take an animal into that courtyard. He'd learn early on something special was happening. Look at what that priest is doing with that animal and what's being done with that blood. And early on he was to learn something about the incredible enormity of his sin and what was required to at least attempt to handle it. You'll notice immediately this movable courtyard had in it some significant elements and matters. And as you can see, the sacrifice that took place there, they learned early on by the very name, the altar of burnt offering. Moses will tell us in Leviticus that inasmuch as peace offerings and burnt offerings were offered there, it was human's attempt to make peace with God by offering that thing commanded by God. Before we discuss that in more detail and draw the lessons to our day, notice also the laver was located between the altar burnt offering and the tabernacle itself. God again did not leave that to their decision. He told them where to place the laver. You and I might ask, what difference does it make as long as it's in the courtyard somewhere? As we will find, there was importance in where it was placed. God's providential will had a perfect plan for every element of this tabernacle and even where it was located. And as we study both tonight and next Sunday evening, let's look in some detail at what those significances were. In terms of labor, what was its purpose? We'll find it described in Exodus 30 beginning in verse 17. It was in fact to be constructed and made in the way that God commanded. It was to hold water and the priests were to wash in the water of that laver. In fact, highlighted near the bottom of that screen, they were expressly told to wash both their hands and their feet, thus not one or the other, but both. And in addition to that, 
We also understand there was a penalty of death for any priest who attempted to enter into the tabernacle unwashed. You and I alone may ponder to pause and think about the significance of that element. You might ask, what difference does it make if he failed to wash his hands? Maybe he forgot. His job was not to forget. For under penalty of death, he would attempt to enter that tabernacle unwashing. You see, there was something vitally significant about the washing. Not only those matters. With those things having been described, look again at the picture. Clearly, one could not then enter directly into the tabernacle from the altar without appreciating the significance of the laver. That basin made of brass that held water for washing. With those thoughts in mind, you, you and I might now ask, so what's the significance of this, God? What's the meaning of it all? Early on, as we've noted, perhaps the Jews would have come to realize because of what happened here and because of what God decreed, there was some vital significance. Let's begin, and for the remainder of our lesson, try to extract the jewels of great truth that are to be found in these descriptions. First of all, the primary problem with which they had to wrestle, and it was a problem that is still ever so vital for each of us today, is, without a doubt, the problem to be seen of sin. It was an ever-present reality. That's why the offerings had to be offered. That's why the washing had to be done. That's why the blood had to be shed. All of it centered around the very means and power and might of sin. In fact, to look at just a few of the verses, I've tried to notice all along about that in this particular tabernacle we found that God specified the only acceptable approach to him. Any other pathway and attempted approach to God was unsatisfactory. In 1 Kings 8, 46, we learn on that occasion as decreed by Solomon, there is no man that sinneth not. Later, the same man, Solomon decreed in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, that again, there's no man that has no sin. And thus, we appreciate that as they attempted by decree of God to wrestle with their sins, this tabernacle was his way of helping them see how it was to be dealt with. So much so, because notice, as surely as God is holy, and remember, he would tell them in Exodus 25, 9, that he would meet with them in the most holy place. And so the only way to get to where God was, was to enter through the courtyard, through the holy place, and into the most holy place. There was a specified, direct, and only one acceptable way of getting there. Any other way would not do. Notice that God is holy. In Habakkuk 1.13, we read on that occasion, He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. One couldn't come before Him clothed in sin and expect to be able to make it to His presence. In Psalm 5 verse 4, again, the David declared the purity of God and he will not tolerate co-inhabiting with sin. He is too pure and too holy for that. And thus, any person, including ourselves, who are to come in his presence must first be cleansed of sin. We can't hope to come where he is and be encumbered with sin. No wonder in Revelation 21, 27, it says, No defilement will enter heaven. Anyone that has sin has no hope of entering heaven. The only hope is to be cleansed of that sin and then in the attitude of that cleansing to feel his good blessing, 
to grant us the privilege of entering therein. And so as we revisit the tabernacle, we're seeing all of that portrayed here in the era of the Old Testament. But notice, if you would, what comes next. As you and I give some thought to the nature of this cleansing from sin, there might well then be some to say, but I'm a good person. I don't. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't kidnapped anyone. I have never stolen anything. I don't cheat on my husband or my wife. And so God certainly will accept me on the terms of my moral, ethical goodness. Are you sure about that? For a, how easy would it have been for a person of the Old Testament to say, but I, I'm a good husband, I'm a good wife, I'm faithful in my provision for my children, I certainly haven't ever stolen another man's ox, I haven't killed another man's animals. God still said, I have but one way to be approached. You must come to me by way of this tabernacle and all that it exemplifies, or you can't come to me at all. Again, the lessons are easy to appreciate. Every time one saw the tabernacle, this would be the glaring set of ideas that would cross the mind. And today, we should also make certain to remember that to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4.17. So you see, it's more than just not killing someone or not being unfaithful to one's spouse. If I know to do that which is good, but due to my laziness, my apathy, any other rationalization I offer, I fail. I'm guilty of sin. It's that simple. In fact, in Proverbs 24, 9, even a foolish thought is cataloged as sin on that occasion. Thus, we should realize we all are in need of forgiveness of sin. And so, what the Jews of the Old Testament era needed, we still need. And thus, the lessons of the tabernacle ring so vibrant and so needed in our life yet today. With that in mind, let's come to the altar of burnt offering. The first thing one would encounter in passing through the entranceway into the courtyard. In that altar of burnt offering, we see very clearly the offering made for sin. It had to be a blemishless sacrifice, a blemishless offering. That was affirmed in Deuteronomy 17.1 as well as many other times as well. They had to bring the best of their flock, their herd. Any other thing was unworthy of the greatness of God and he would not accept it. He said that in Deuteronomy 17 and in Malachi 1. And thus we immediately learn something ever so great about that sacrifice. Just as surely as it needed to be blemishless, what about the offering made for you and for me today? You and I might ponder, can I offer myself? Will God accept me? Well, of course not. My blood is stained with sin. What kind of offering would that be? That wouldn't be satisfactory. Someone might say, what about an animal? They offered an animal, may we? Hebrews 10.4 reminds us that they were inefficacious then. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They were offered by the command of God until the perfect sacrifice would come. Hebrews 9 verses 16 and 17 will inform us that that blood that Christ shed flowed back to take care of that which was the case even then. And thus we learn animal blood won't do. Human blood won't do. It took the blood of the perfect Son of God. And thus when that perfect sacrifice was offered, we have all that was ever intended to be accomplished at the altar burnt offering now accomplished for us when it was offered in the greatness of the sacrifice of the Son of God. 
Those thoughts, of course, point us to the great initiative of God on our behalf when He sent His Son. And are we not able to read in Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Christ was offered, notice, just like those animals were offered, Christ was offered. And He was offered as that one perfect ideal sacrifice, blemishless in every regard, for He had no sin, and thus could be heaped upon Him the sin of everyone else, including you and me. And He could dutifully and perfectly carry them as a proper sacrifice before God. All those sacrifices they offered at that burnt offering pointed to the perfect one that one day would come. And Jesus was the one. And in the reality of that burnt offering, can we not appreciate that which Jesus brought fully to bear? Hebrews 10 verse 12 will tell us that the perfect sacrifice was then offered. That word perfect is so powerful in many ways, isn't it? For it means there was nothing lacking in it. It means that there was nothing incomplete about it. It means there was nothing short in what it was able to accomplish. His sacrifice can cleanse every sin of your life and mine, no matter how egregious they may have been, no matter how thoughtless they may have been directed. His blood can cleanse it all. And 1 John 2 verse 12 says that his sacrifice was the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That leaves out no sin and it leaves out no one. The only ones that can't be cleansed are the ones that refuse to come to Him. The ones that refuse to approach by virtue of the greatness of His offering and the greatness of the sacrifice that He made. God indeed is holy. He can now be approached by this thoroughfare of His Son and He will be approached no other way. For John 14, 6 still tells us that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Notice how easy to see the parallel. They had but one way to enter into the holy place. You and I have but one way to come into God. It is through the Christ. The parallel is so remarkable. And yet these things were commanded by God with regard to the tabernacle 1,500 years before the Lord was ever born. Was He not trying to impress upon the human family the magnitude of sin and that there was one day coming from that perspective, one who could deal with it and one who would deal with it. As you could see from the matter of that altar burnt offering, what next? Between that altar and the tabernacle was the laver. Let's give some thought then near the bottom of that slide to the significance of the laver. These priests, as we've already noted, were absolutely commanded and demanded by God that they would wash before they enter into the holy place. And if they failed to do so, it was under penalty of death. They had to wash their feet and their hands. As we learn from that passage and from others that relate to it, for instance, later when Solomon constructed a much larger laver for the temple complex in 1 Kings chapters 4 through 7, we learn there that as they washed in that, the priest did. It was for their ceremonial purification so that they could appear holy upon entering into that holy place. Notice the significance was not just to remove dirt from the body. That really was unimportant. It was the purification of their person in the removal of that which was abominable before the eyes and the appearance of the God of heaven. 
it was this idea of being cleansed. As one gives some thought to the washing of that water, you and I might quickly then undertake the asking, what then serves as that role for us today? We've discussed about the altar burnt offering has its parallel in the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the only way that you and I can be cleansed from sin. But what about this washing? What is it that that involves? What is its significance? I wonder what it attaches to in our day and in our time. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, a few thoughts I think will hone our attention and focus it rather vitally upon the meaning and significance of this labor. In the New Testament, when you and I encounter the subject of washing, we do find that it's mentioned, do we not? Just as surely as something parallel to the altar burnt offering is mentioned, namely the sacrifice of our Savior, we find a host of parallels. In Titus 3.5, for example, as the inspired apostle was writing to his young son in the faith, Titus, he specifically made mention of the washing of regeneration. And wasn't it true in Hebrews 10, verse 22, we are reminded again about the washing available in this era. And in fact, that one is so significant, I would encourage you to read it with me. Hebrews 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Washed with pure water? Without doubt, those who heard those things read would have raced in their mind back to the realization of the significance of the labor and the fact that those priests, in order to enter the holy place, were required by God to wash. As you and I investigate other passages, might I direct your attention to what it is that you and I are to be washed in. It's true that water is mentioned, isn't it? Just as surely as Jesus, in his discussion with Nicodemus, he said in John chapter 3, beginning in verse number 3, he easily pointed out, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye be born again, ye shall not see the kingdom of heaven. But then in his confusion, Nicodemus asked, How can a man be born again? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus in reply said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And thus, in one failed swoop, the Lord forevermore demanded the reality, Nicodemus, you and all others must be born again of water and the Spirit. And as we thus turn the pages of the New Testament and read about the reality of washing in water and what it signified and that which occurred, how often in the book of Acts do we find the aftermath of what the Lord taught? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. And on the first day that the church began, when there were men who cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? By inspiration, it was the inspired apostle Peter who quickly and without reservation and with great confidence said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And to the congregation in Rome, wasn't it Paul who in his discussion with them, we read in Romans 6 beginning in verse 3 about the reality of the fact that baptism is a burial? What kind of burial? It's not just a mental one. 
for it required just what that eunuch underwent in Acts the 8th chapter. Here was one who said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And he and Philip went down into the water, and Philip baptized him, and he came up out of the water. One cannot come up out of what he has never been in. And wasn't it Paul, or rather Saul at that occasion, when Ananias told him, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There was the case where sins were washed away. Just as those priests were required by God to wash in that labor before entering into the holy place, you and I are required, and so is anyone, to wash in the appropriate way in baptism in order to enter that holy place. As we shall find, though it's a bit ahead next Lord's Day evening, the holy place representative of the church. One cannot enter into the church without being baptized in the same way that one could not enter into the holy place without washing. The two are perfectly parallel. No wonder you and I lift high the reality and the requirement of baptism. And yet isn't it amazing in that regard that many in our world are attempting to enter into a holy place without washing. God condemned it by death then. He'll condemn it by death now. One will find oneself lacking at judgment, having attempted unwashing to enter into God's presence. And the washing only happens in baptism. Those thus who try to look lightly upon baptism or to excuse it or to circumvent it or to find a loophole around it are flying in the face of all the tabernacle ever stood for. That labor was between the tabernacle and the labor and the, and the altar burnt offering. You couldn't get into the holy place without passing by the altar, the, the, the laver. And so today, as you and I think about what it means to become a Christian, to enter into the holy place where all of us are priests, First Peter 2, 5, we notice the need for washing. And so the question that might well then be highlighted is the interesting fact affirmed in First Peter 3, 21. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a lovely thing. It is a point in which one contacts the blood of Christ and is washed. It's so lovely and beautiful in its meaning, in its significance, in its importance. Tonight, as we draw this lesson to its conclusion is we've highlighted some of these features of the tabernacle. We have focused only on the courtyard tonight, admittedly. We'll look forward to looking at some of the remaining features of the actual tabernacle complex itself. But these are some of the lessons that we've highlighted tonight. From Hebrews chapter 9, the inspired writer said before us that tabernacle was only a shadow of what was to come. All that it represented and stood for pointed to a far greater sanctuary much later in time. Guess what? The sanctuary is now here. You and I have the privilege of being a part of it, being in it, knowing its blessings, appreciating its rewards, and looking forward to the finality of its greatness. The question that thus should rest upon each of our minds tonight, are you and I in a position to having been benefited by the greatness of what happened in the courtyard? Have, have you made use of what happened when Christ served the purpose of the altar burnt offering? Have you been washed by virtue of the meaning today of the laver in baptism? If not, you're still in your sins. You've never been cleansed. 
despite what any human otherwise may have said, listen to what the Lord has said. Paul again in Acts twenty two sixteen was still in his sins up until he had been baptized, despite the fact he had believed, despite the fact he had repented, he was a man still in sin. Tonight, you and I are still in sin if we have never been baptized scripturally. Have you been baptized scripturally? Have you allowed yourself to be plunged beneath the surface of water and therein, not that the power is in the water, it's in that which the water allows you to contact, which is the blood of Christ by faith. If tonight there would be one or more that's never been baptized for the remission of your sins, let the lesson of the labor as well as the altar burnt offering point us in that direction and understand the beauty of what God represented centuries ago but is now so much greater still. Christ's superior sanctuary. As we continue our study, we'll see even more greatness to be seen. But for now, if you need to respond in a public way, why not tonight? A hymn of encouragement has been selected, song number eight. And if we could be of assistance to you in a public way, in an initial obedience, or to pray on your behalf for forgiveness of sins that are known in a public way, we'd be honored, we'd be happy to assist. And in fact, we would dutifully strive to do that just as soon as we could, right after we stand and right after we sing.